Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the angels said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Hands up if you are hoping for a surprise tomorrow. Some of you. Interesting. All right. Hands up those of you who are hoping for no surprises tomorrow. We're all different, aren't we? I think there are more people who don't want surprises than are. Um, For those of you who don't want any surprises, I'm not going to ask you the follow-up question, which is, is that because you've been burnt in the past? And you thought you had found the perfect present for the person that you intended to give it to, only to discover that it was the very last thing in the world that they really wanted. And now, now you've learnt. Now you only buy gifts from the gift list that they write in the months before. Well, we'll all see tomorrow, won't we? I'm going to be looking around to see whether there are big smiley faces or some slightly pained expressions of, I had to pretend to like it even though I don't. But when they're done well, surprises are a lovely, lovely thing. Surprise present is a lovely reminder of how much somebody knows you. A surprise visit is a reminder of how much somebody loves you. Surprises, good surprises, are a good thing. And that's just as true about the very first Christmas, only we're so familiar with the story that we often miss the surprising little details. And that's what I want to spend just a few minutes thinking about this morning. 
and to hang this morning on Bethlehem. I want you to see two lovely truths from Bethlehem that remind us that Christmas surprises bring hope. That's what I want you to see. Christmas surprises bring hope. The first thing is this. Bethlehem reminds us how God delights to work. On one level, Bethlehem had an interesting past. So a thousand years before Jesus was born, David was born in Bethlehem. And a little later in David's life, Samuel anoints David to become the future king of Israel in Bethlehem. But then a little later, David leaves Bethlehem, and David's probably more famous for becoming the king who conquered the great city of Jerusalem. So Bethlehem remains small. About 300 years after David, Micah, a prophet in the Old Testament, he refers to Bethlehem as being small among the clans of Judah. And we're reminded of that, again, a further few hundred years later, when after the Israelites were taken to Babylon, they came back out of exile, and Ezra records a list of all the people who were coming back. And Bethlehem's on that list. There were 123 of the captives who returned to Bethlehem. 123 out of 42,360. That's 0.3% of the returning exiles, went to Bethlehem. Bethlehem's small, like really small. And it stayed that way until the time of Jesus. We don't know exactly what the population was when Jesus was born, but archaeologists would estimate it's between one and 3,000 people. Let's make that real, put that in some context. Um, there are 1,400 people in Barford. There are 2,000 people in Bishop's Tatchbrook. There are... 2,300 in Radford Semily, 2,700 in Harbury, 2,600 in Dunchurch. That's the kind of scale that you need to have in mind when you think about Bethlehem. Humanly speaking, without being disparaging of any of our lovely people who live in all of those villages, Bethlehem wasn't spectacular. In one sense, great things didn't happen in Bethlehem. Great things left Bethlehem. And her most impressive claim to fame was the ancient equivalent of that blue plaque that would have been stuck over a door somewhere saying, King David was born here. Now, if you forget Micah's prophecy for a minute, and we're going to get there in a minute, so don't worry, but if you forget that for a minute, there was no reason to think that Bethlehem was anything important at all. And the Jews were really, really, really longing for something mega important. That's what one of the most famous Christmas passages tells us. So if you come tonight, and I would love for you to come this evening, Matthew's going to help us work through a number of passages, and one of them is Isaiah 9. Uh, We're not going to look at lots of detail. All I want you to think of is the scale of the problem that this coming Messiah is going to fix. 
So listen to these lovely words. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. That is a staggeringly massive longing for salvation. And for so many of the Jews who lived with that in their mind before Jesus came, they would have thought that their only hope would be some massive, mighty warrior king. Because all that's promised here is some kind of power and control that would defeat all of the enemies and leave Israel to live in peace. But we know what Isaiah says next. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. See, God delights to work in ways that bring him glory. So how would he bring The light, the joy, the peace, the lifting of burdens that Isaiah spoke of. Not through a mighty warrior, but through a baby. And where would the baby be born? Bethlehem, small among the clans of Judahem. Why Bethlehem and not Jerusalem? Because God delights to work in ways that bring him all the glory. That's God's MO. All the way from Genesis to Revelation, the beginning and the end of the Bible, God works in surprising ways. He works in unexpected ways. He works at points when we might have thought he's not going to work again, and to do so in ways that will leave us praising him. That's what Paul understood. Um, When Paul began his letter to an early church in a place called Corinth, He was really writing about the kinds of people that God would save and the surprising way that he'd do that. But the thing that comes out when you read these next few verses is this incredible um, truth that God works in the most surprising ways. So here's a bit from 1 Corinthians. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things out of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That's how God delights to work. He loves to turn our expectations inside out and upside down. He saves the least likely through the least likely in the most unlikely of places so that he gets all the glory. And that little surprise at Christmas is one great reason to give us hope. How are our friends and family going to become Christians? Ultimate answer, because Jesus is going to come alive to them, because God is going to give them faith to trust in Jesus for themselves. But God chooses to use means. He chose to use means by sending his son. He chose to send his son to the least likely place so that he would get all the glory. And similarly, he chooses to use means to save our family and our friends and our neighbors and our colleagues. 
He chooses to use unimportant and unimpressive and ineloquent people like me and you to tell our friends about the Lord Jesus Christ because he delights to work that way. That's the first thing. Bethlehem reminds us how God delights to work. Here's the second way that Bethlehem surprises us and gives us hope this Christmas. Bethlehem shows us we can trust the sovereignty of God. And here's where I want to zero in on Micah's prophecy. So if you have one of these church Bibles, uh, Micah chapter 5, wow, kindness of God, first page, is 933. It's going to appear on the screen as well for you. I just want to read this verse to you. That was written more than 700 years before Jesus was born. God promised through Micah, Micah 5 verse 2, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. That is a stunning promise. If you were to go home this afternoon and read the 39 books of the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, that's probably the clearest and the most specific promise that God made about exactly where Jesus would be born. And what I want us to see this morning are three lovely ways this verse shows us we can trust the sovereignty of God. Number one. God's in charge of time, so we can trust him. God is in charge of time, so we can trust him. If you've still got your Bible in Micah, flip back to chapter 1, the very first verse. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That's our date stamp. We know when those kings lived. So Jotham was king from 750 to 735 BC, Ahaz from 735 to 715, and Hezekiah from 715 to 687. That's the window when Micah made this prophecy. So 700 years before Jesus was born, God puts a pin in the map on Bethlehem and says that is where the Savior will be born. Now, my life, I can't control what's going to happen in the next seven minutes, let alone the next seven hours. And as you look back on 2023, I wonder whether you would have that similarly humbling sense of how much you're not in control of. How many of you have booked a holiday in the year that has just gone? Months in advance, everything was organized, and then by the time you were ready to go, somebody was ill and you couldn't. A number of you have moved house during the past year. And for some, I'm not going to look at anyone because it's a horrible memory, really. Uh, Everything was planned, and all the removals were booked, and then the lawyers messed up, and everything got delayed again. All of our careful planning, and we've been reminded this year again and again and again that we are not in control. But God is. He's so sovereignly in control. He can promise more than 700 years before that a specific thing would happen, and it absolutely would. God's in charge of time, so we can trust him. Second thing is, God's in charge of people, so we can trust him. Go back to Luke 2, if you have a Bible, please. 
Luke 2, where do Mary and Joseph live at the very beginning of the story? Any kids dig into Luke 2 for me and tell me, where do they live at the beginning of the story? Shout it out. I heard it. Nazareth. Nazareth. Thank you. Nazareth is there um, on the map. And there's Bethlehem, which is about 70 miles directly due south. Now, to put that in context, that is basically the same distance as going from Leamington to Newbury. And what's going on for Mary and Joseph right now? Well, look at verse 5. They're not yet married, but they're pledged to be married. And Mary's pregnant. They're really pregnant. (laughs) Like about to have a baby pregnant. And for all of you mums in the room, you know that there is absolutely no way, if you could have helped it, that you would have gone on a long journey in the days or weeks before you had a baby. You absolutely wouldn't have walked or ridden a donkey to Newbury. It's just not what you're going to do. Plus, plus, think about their relationship. Mary and Joseph, to do this journey that we all know they're going to do, are going to go on a very long journey, which is probably going to require them to stop at various places in Israel when she's pregnant and they're not married. That's going to be really awkward. So what is it that is going to make a heavily pregnant woman who's not married travel all that distance? Ah, yes. That would be a proud and selfish Roman official. Look back at verse 1. Caesar Augustus decided that everybody needed to take part in a census. Why bother with a census? The Jews couldn't serve in the Roman Empire's army. So this census isn't about Caesar Augustus recruiting more soldiers. The only point that they would have this census is so that he could count exactly how many people are in all these different areas and make sure he was getting the taxes. That's what all of this is about. This is about an arrogant, greedy Roman official who wants more money. And all of this upheaval, sending all of these people to all of their places of birth, is because he needs more cash. Augustus built the Roman Forum. He founded libraries. He paid for extravagant parties with all of his favorite Roman people. He even boasted that he'd found Rome built in brick but left in marble. And all of that took loads of money. So this arrogant Roman emperor who wanted everybody to think of him as a god, that would demonstrate his power and his wealth by building all of these incredible things, needed loads more money. Caesar Augustus was not a godly man. But he was under God's plan. How would God move Joseph and a heavily pregnant Mary 70 miles south to fulfill a 700-year-old prophecy? Through an arrogant, self-serving, godless leader. That's how big God's sovereignty is. Now, when you think about Bethlehem that way, it adds a layer of depth to the way that we understand what Paul promises in Romans 8, verse 28. 
And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Over the course of the next week, loads of us are going to reflect on last year, this year. Um, You might do that going back through your diary, remembering where you were and who you met. You might sit down with your phone or your tablet, whatever, and scroll through all all of your photos, all of the videos, and remember lovely, happy memories. And I pray that when you do that, there would be loads of lovely, happy memories. But the truth is, for every single one of us, this year has also included some harder memories. And actually, oftentimes, those hard memories have come because of other people. One of the lessons that Bethlehem and Caesar show us is that the all things through which God works for the good of his people includes greedy Selfish people who are doing things for their own ends. And that's sometimes very hard for us to see. It's hard to see in the moment. Sometimes it's hard to see a few months later. Sometimes it's hard to see years later. And often we never fully understand it at all. You may not be able to trace all of the goodness that flows from all of the hard moments this year yet. But God's sovereign over them too. He's working all of those things together for your good. Thirdly and finally, God's in charge of the future so we can trust him. We've seen something of this in God being in charge of time But standing where we do today, 2,000 years after Jesus' birth, we need to be reminded that God's still in charge of the future. So if you go back to Micah 5, we read, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. That hasn't happened yet. Not in an ultimate sense. Jesus has yet to be revealed as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the one before whom all people are subject. But it is going to happen. We know it's going to happen because God's promised it's going to happen and God is in control of all things. So my question for you as we close is, are you ready for Jesus to return? Is your heart ready to joyfully receive all of the things that we have been singing about this morning as you behold Jesus for yourself? Is he the king, the ruler, not over Israel in an ethnic sense, but over your life? Is he the savior of your soul? Now you might say, well, seriously, we've been waiting 2,000 years for this. Is it really going to happen? And if it is going to happen, is it really important that I get my life sorted now? Why can't I just enjoy the next few years and think about this later? Think about how much of a surprise Mary's conception with Jesus was to her. Think about all the parables that Jesus teaches us about how suddenly he will return. It's not that the waiting means he isn't coming. It's that the waiting shows us his patience. 
It's a lovely reminder in the letter to Peter where God tells us, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord isn't slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's what Bethlehem reminds us. God works in all things and he delights to work in ways that are going to surprise us and bring him all the glory. As you look back on the year that is coming to an end and you look forward to a year that you have no idea what it will contain, that, I pray, is your confidence that God is the anchor in your life.